90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Wonderful, John. It's a nice, cold day here in Oklahoma. Not as snowy as we had hoped since we canceled every school in the state today. But <laughs> they tell us it's coming later, so I will trust trust that forecast. How about you? Oh, uh, actually pretty similar. Uh, here at Penn State, we canceled today, which we almost never cancel. Initially, it was just a delay, but they went ahead and uh, closed us down for the entire day. Uh, this is, of course, when we're recording, though. Uh, yeah. Are, is is there actual precipitation falling from the sky? Right now, there's not. But we had a maybe an inch or so of kind of really fine ice pellets last night that then they then got compacted down into a nice solid sheet for us this morning. Ah. So for those of you that don't know, OU and Penn State are very rival schools when it comes to meteorology. So. I hope that this has not escaped the notice of some Penn State students that we haven't actually gotten any precipitation here, even though we canceled <laughs> school last night at 9 p.m. So, <laughs> Yeah, these things do happen, it seems like. Uh, yeah, the weather's unpredictable. It is also not an exact science. <laughs> no, no, especially winter weather. It's always very tricky, especially at totals and snowfall amounts, because liquid equivalents are really strange depending on humidity temperature all kinds of variables yeah and there's a thousand different definitions for the type of how icy your rain is or how rainy your ice is which is what we're sort of dealing with right now and then you get snow bands that don't go where they're supposed to and yeah but speaking of weather i know that you brought to my attention some weather related phenomenon that's been going on the last week well, I don't know about a weather-related phenomenon yeah, directly. True. <laughs> but yes, we uh, we had a weather satellite explode in orbit. Okay, <laughs> that seems like something we all should have heard about, but I hadn't heard about it until you told me. Yeah, so it actually occurred a long time ago, uh, relatively, I guess. It exploded about February third. And it turns out this isn't a regular civilian weather satellite. It's part of the Defense Meteorological Satellite System, or DMSP. Uh, so maybe that's why we haven't heard about it. <laughs> right. So we didn't know about it, and it probably would have gone unmentioned. Uh, but somebody that was doing telemetry for another company noticed that where this satellite should be, there were now 43 pieces <laughs> in orbit. <laughs> So one satellite to 43 pieces of space debris, huh? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the Air Force, I think it was on about February 27th, it looks like, said, okay, yes, we did lose this satellite. There was a sudden temperature spike, and they're suspecting something in the power system. But uh, it didn't have a big impact on their system because they launch satellites all the time to replace uh, older ones in the fleet. And this particular one was launched in 95. So it had a pretty decent lifetime. Hey, well, that's okay. And you say sudden temperature spike, and I can't help but thinking about somebody shooting a laser and knocking it <laughs> out of orbit. But I doubt that's really what happened. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm sure that they've got it. And since they say they're suspecting the power system, I imagine they have some pretty concrete data that's undisclosed <laughs> about uh, a battery exploding or 
I mean, maybe these batteries were the Boeing Dreamliner battery prototypes. <laughs> well, I guess we can uh, we can always blame our uh, bad forecasts on the lack of data from that specific weather satellite in hindsight, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of orbiting objects, that kind of brings us to what we're going to talk about today in a, in a manner of speaking, right? Yeah, so this is a topic that Shannon had brought up, and initially the answer wasn't really kind of obvious, was how do you know how heavy a planet is? How do you weigh a planet? Right. Um, This was sort of a geophysics-based exercise that we talked about in a planetary class that I took, because it seems like, you know, we're geosciences. We talk a lot about the Earth, but we're also interested in the rest of the planets, right? I feel like every science nerd at heart really loves astronomy. Like, it is the coolest of the scientists, right? <laughs> but right. depending on your tolerance for math uh, is your varying levels of interest in it. And so this is sort of a pretty math-heavy discussion, but why do we even care about how much a planet weighs? Well, it's a pretty fundamental measure, and it is the basis for a lot more measurements that we go through when we're trying to define the place that we live in, especially our specific solar system neighborhood. Right. And really how much a planet weighs, of course, is going to change the acceleration of gravity that you experience when you're on the surface of that planet. It's going to factor into spaceflight calculations, uh, all the wonderful theoretical physics that people do. Uh, (laughs) So we really want to know these things. And It's kind of tricky. In fact, if you look at uh, the mass of the Earth, it's about 5.9 times 10 to the 24th kilograms. You just gave it away. Now no one has to listen anymore because they already know how heavy we are. (laughs) (laughs) But how we got to that measurement, which is massive, 10 to the 24th? That's, 10 to the 24th. That's massive. And we, then we kind of use that as a standard, and uh, we compare other planets to the mass of the Earth. Right. Because these are not intuitive numbers to think about. Anything to the 24th power is not an easy-to-grasp number. <laughs> but if you say something like, it's 300 Earths, right. you have an idea it's pretty big. Exactly. And that's how, you know, like, that's how I teach my son about the relative sizes of the planets. And I think that's how we all start off is... You know, we sort of know what we are, even though I don't feel like most people have an idea about how big the Earth is. Right. And every geophysicist, at least, should have this as one of their, uh, I call them pocket numbers. (laughs) And I I stole that from uh, one of the professors here. And these are numbers that you should always have in your pocket, ready to go. You should have these (laughs) memorized if you work in earth science, specifically quantitative earth science. And that's the radius of the earth, which is 6,371 kilometers. Uh, that was one of the questions on my friend's PhD exam was that simple question. What's the radius of the earth? And that was it. <laughs> right. And it's kind of an interesting path that we took to get to the radius of the earth, but that's probably a whole separate show in itself, <laughs> uh, dealing with sticks and ancient Greeks. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. It probably is, but we should mention, I mean, these are things that we think we need satellites to actually observe, but we don't, because it all started back with Eratosthenes in 200 BC. And like you said, we will talk about this at some other time, because they ancient Greeks did a whole lot of scientific experiments to very accurately determine the radius of the Earth before we had any of these remote sensing things that we rely so much 
on today. And I know you love your technology, but you just need <laughs> two sticks in the sun to figure out the radius of the Earth. <laughs> but since we don't have Greeks, ancient Greeks on other planets that we know of, <laughs> now is where we need remote sensing things to help us determine um, what the radiuses are of the other planets in our solar system. Right. And this is going to go directly into discussion about gravity, because we can use gravity and measurements of the force of gravity to get at the size and mass of other bodies. And as geophysicists, we're all very familiar with using gravity to find things like salt domes or tunnels if you're a student and you know, you're know you supposed to go find a steam tunnel on your university <laughs> campus or something like that. Uh, it's always blown my mind that gravity is a non-unique solution, though. When we're sensing gravity, we're trying to measure differences in you know, the things below us. And there are all sorts of explanations. So this is where every geophysicist needs to have a good geologist buddy to help keep them on track, I feel like. <laughs> Right. In geophysics, uh, like a lot of things, there's a size-to-depth trade-off in gravity solutions. And uh, sometimes you see some pretty interesting models where a geophysicist maybe didn't carefully consider <laughs> geological constraints. <laughs> uh, yes, I know you guys like to make up your own rocks. But we're not talking about Earth's <laughs> gravity as much as we are about the perturbations of gravity in between two different bodies, right? Right. So... Everybody knows or has seen at some point uh, Newton's universal law of gravitation. <laughs> yes. It's a great name. It really and it is. turns out, <laughs> well, it turns out there's this whole backstory about Newton and Hooke arguing over who came up with this law and <laughs> you know, all kinds of interesting scientific politics surrounding it. As uh, there are with many of the assumptions that we make or you know, equations that we take for granted. And we could go on for years about all the, I mean, paleontology in itself. There are so many old dead guys that fought over dinosaurs. It's super intriguing. But Newton right. worked off of more than just Hook and Newton working at that time, but they first started to define gravitational law with Kepler, right? Right. So, there were some really interesting problems in orbital mechanics that weren't understood, and kind of the, the force that was seemed to be attracting objects that had mass was unexplained. And so it turns out uh, the force looked like it fell off with the square of the distance between the objects. Okay. So an object twice as far away, uh, the force between them was four times weaker. Right. An object four times as far away, the force was 16 times weaker. Uh, and it was eventually written down in this form of the force equals a big G, which is a gravitational constant that we'll get to in a little bit. Love those constants. <laughs> right. And then the product of the masses of the things that are attracting each other, and then divide it by the radius squared to get that uh, falling off, the inverse square effect. Right. Right. Got that. So we know most of those things. Right, so let's say that we have a satellite orbiting the Earth, uh, maybe the one that just blew up. We'll use that as an example. Okay. And we can neglect its mass because it's very small compared to the mass of the Earth. Well, actually, it's in 43 pieces, so it's extremely small and completely negligible now, but <laughs> right. I digress. <laughs> so the mass of the Earth is, you know, times 10 to the 24th kilograms, and satellites, even really big ones, are nowhere close to, I mean, Tens of orders of magnitude different. Right. So we can neglect that, 
And we know how far away the satellite is because we, we, we put it in a certain orbit. We put it there, yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be the radius. And we uh, know big G. And because we know how fast the satellite's going, we have to know the force that's uh, holding it in this orbit. And we can actually then back out M for the mass of the Earth. Okay. Well, let's go back to that equation. So what about right. big G? How, how did we figure out what big G is? So big G is the gravitational constant, and it turns out it's pretty tricky to measure. Uh, can, the first measurement of it was the Cavendish experiment, and he actually just was measuring the attraction of two big lead balls uh, with a torsion balance and trying to get the force of uh, gravity and then back out big G that way. Okay, right, exactly. And so this was back in the 1700s late 1700s that Cavendish was first uh, defining this constant that we still use today, right? Because his... Right, and w- well, yeah, and we're continually refining it uh, because, like I said, it's really hard to measure because gravity in terms of the fundamental forces is really pretty weak. Right. And we can't actually get our measurement apparatus out of a gravitational field. <laughs> That's true. You know, I think about that. I work with magnetism, and the first thing you do is you want a magnetic field-free room, but we can't really do that with gravity. So you have to always be, you know, taking into account the differences, things that could be acting on gravity. Right. And really, this is, this is one of the things that it always drives me nuts when people talk about the astronauts on the International Space Station being in zero gravity. Because it's not true. No. It's not at, at all. They are definitely under the influence of a gravitational force. Otherwise, they would go floating off. away. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because it's orbiting the Earth. And that force is what let it, lets us back out the mass of the Earth, right. just like we discussed. So it's really small up there, smaller than it is right at the surface of the Earth. But like you said, big G is, also, is a really small force anyway. Big G is 6.67 times 10 to the negative 11th Newton meters squared. Per kilogram squared. And so that's really, I mean, we have about to a few more decimal places in that now. But for our purposes, that's going to be plenty. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, who knew weighing a planet was so difficult? So we've got big G taken care of. Mm-hmm. Now what do we do? And, well, we've done uh, the mass of the Earth roughly by putting some satellites up. But getting the mass of other planets, well, that can be a little tricky and we need to know some things about them, like their size and how far away they are before we can actually get a weight estimate. Right. Uh, because you, you could, of course, do it just kind of by the, the geometric argument of saying, I know that I have a spherical planet, and it's this big, and I'm going to assume the average density is X, and very simply get out what the mass of the planet is, but that's probably not the best approach. Right, because assuming an average density based on what well we'd probably base it on some sort of remote sensing that we have about the composition of the planets but that's not always the best idea especially planets that we don't have a lot of observations on right so yeah they actually tried this on an asteroid and it didn't work so well because it turned out to be a lot frothier than they had expected (laughs) Uh as uh, Uh they used (laughs) a highly scientific term um so that's important because asteroids we assume are this really dense metal 
And then they got there and they saw that there was actually a lot of vesicles or air pockets in the asteroid. And so that's a big difference in the density when you have all these air pockets and it's something that looks like a vesicular basalt versus a hard chunk of iron, right? Right. So the geometric size and density may not be the best way to go, but we're in luck because we can actually measure the size of a planet from Earth or any remote object uh, just by using a couple of telescopes or maybe a laser or some radio waves. There's several different <laughs> methods. <laughs> Which is always good in science to have your backup methods corroborate your first measurement. But I mean, this has been done for a while because that is all you need is a telescope in one location and a telescope in another location, and you just use triangulation, which is something that, you know, most people, if they don't know how to do it, they at least know what it means, right? So you're looking at this distant object from two separate areas on Earth, and you can use the difference in your uh, locations to figure out the size of the object. Right, and this requires some pretty precise measurements, but you do just point your telescopes at the same feature, maybe a terminator or something like that of the planet, and then do some high school trigonometry. Right, exactly. That's about it. That, see, kids, that's why it's important to pay attention in trig class. You say you're never going to use this, but... If you become a geophysicist or astrodynamicist, yes, you will, <laughs> you will use your trigonometry every day. <laughs> As well as lots of really hairy math. Um but yeah, so that's yeah, easy so math to do to figure out something as amazing as like the size of a planet, right? And we have all kinds of, as we use radio waves and then now lasers to do range detecting, we're getting very, very good at this and very, you know, highly accurate measures. Right. And we can use a similar technique to actually get the range to the planet, right? We have these measurements from different places on Earth and... We can back out the range as well. But there are a few alternatives there because depending on how far away what we're trying to uh, range is, sometimes we can just shoot it with radio waves and time how long it takes the radio waves to get there, reflect off the surface of the planet, and come back. And that is a really fundamental concept we've been doing forever, and we use that in all sorts of different aspects of science. So you just listen, and now you know how far away your object is. Right. Or there's one body that we know its position very well, which is our moon. We talked about this a little bit on a previous show where we'd said that we'd left retroreflectors on the moon during the Apollo missions, and that we can actually uh, shoot a laser at those retroreflectors and time the time of flight of a laser beam to the moon off the retroreflector and back. And that's how we know that the moon is moving away from us at something like a centimeter a year. Uh, which is quite a lot, actually. Um, and that's right. really a lot of things come into play when you're doing this because you have to make all sorts of corrections because we've also talked about how radio waves behave in our atmosphere, right? So if you're listening here on Earth, you have to make all sorts of corrections for our atmospheric dynamics that are going on. We can do this remotely with satellites and other objects that we sent out and not have to do those corrections. So now we know kind of how far away the planet is or the object that we want to measure its mass and we know the size of it, but we still need some kind of measurement of the gravitational acceleration that it's exerting, or the gravitational force that it's exerting on objects around it. And we have, luckily have some natural measures of this for a lot of planets. <laughs> a lot of, but not all, right? So what we're talking about is if the planet has its own natural satellite, 
And there's going to be, just like we talked about the satellite orbiting Earth, there's going to be gravitational interactions between a planet's moons and the planet itself. So this would be an easy measure if the planet had one moon and they were sitting there doing their orbital thing and it'd be super easy, but that's not always the case. Right. If there's just one moon, it's kind of a rinse and repeat. You do this triangulation again, you know where the moon is, you get the size of the moon, the range above the planet, and so on. And then we're back to the simple problem. But like Shannon said, if there's more than one moon, then we start getting some interactions and run into things called the three-body problem. <laughs> or more if you're Saturn or Jupiter, right? Because uh, Yes, the in-body problem. <laughs> exactly. Because really. now you have not only the planet, which is huge, exerting a pull on its satellites, but now you have other satellites, which could be of varying size, all exerting pulls on each other. And so you have to work out who's pulling what, which direction, and you need to know things about the density of these masses to understand who has the most pull, right? Right. And when it comes to the in-body problem, there isn't an analytical solution. Uh, there's no nice, simple formula that we can <laughs> read off or write on a whiteboard. Which is sad. We really have to uh, use numerical methods. Uh, that was my favorite class. Just kidding. Mm, mine too. <laughs> you're kidding too. No, no you're not. <laughs> but it's really interesting because, I mean, gravity does all kinds of weird stuff to satellites depending on their sizes. And I always think this is something that's super interesting to talk about. Like, they do weird things geologically on these satellites, which is a whole nother show. But now back to these fundamental measures. So I don't know about you, Shannon, but I think we should do kind of a quick recap of where we are. I know this is a, it seems like a really roundabout way to get back to the, such a simple thing as the mass of a planet. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. And I mean, we've been trying to figure out the mass to some, some variation of precision for, you know, thousands of years, basically, on Earth. But what do we have? So now we know the mass of planets. We know what gravity... Right. The big G of gravity, so the gravitational attraction is. And so even if we have a lot of satellites, we can still, through some pretty hairy math, work out the gravitational interactions between them. So we've got a pretty fundamental set of measurements about our planetary bodies and us here on Earth. Why do we need them? What do we do with them now? Well, they're useful for lots of things. Uh, of course, on the surface, geophysicists like to... like a mentioned earlier, you know, go hunt for geologic features. <laughs> but on a little bit larger scale, it matters when we send those spacecraft out to do these investigations. We need to know these uh, pretty accurately. Right. And we're sending a lot more spacecraft out every day, right? It seems like <laughs> everyone's getting in on this, um, sending out different spacecraft. But we have to know very specifically where they're going to go when we send them out. I mean, we just landed, the European Space Agency, we as humans just landed a lander on a comet. And you better believe that <laughs> they understood these fundamental um, attributes of that comet before they even began to build that lander, right? Right, and just the path that that spacecraft took to get there, it used lots of... Uh, revolutions around different planets to get kind of a gravitational slingshot to get it to where it needed to be. So we need to know all of these masses so we can plan really complicated trajectories 
And uh, I know when I was down at Johnson, there was a group that met for lunch. Uh, I think it was once a month. And that was called the Trajectory Think Tank. And <laughs> all these folks did was sit there and discuss different ways and different trajectories that we could send spacecraft on to get the most for our fuel dollar and use gravity to our advantage as much as they could. Uh, that's really awesome to think about. And I, I mean, you can't just use one specific body. You have to know the fundamentals of all these different bodies you're going to use because certain things, just like John said, are going to give you a bigger bang for your buck based on the mass and the density of those objects, not just planets, but asteroids or anything else that you can sort of throw your spacecraft around and get a little boost from. If anybody's curious about this, uh, kind of the classic text on this is a book called The Fundamentals of Astrodynamics. And it it is a little hairy <laughs> math-wise, unless you're pretty comfortable with multivariable vector calc and matrix notation. Oh, sure. You might, sure. might want to stay away from it. <laughs> uh, it's definitely not a bedtime reader, but it's really fascinating to actually learn how to do these calculations and see really just how complicated space flight is. Right. I think we take for granted how easy it is. You know, we've had a lot of successful Mars landers and how easy it is to do these things. But I just, I can't underestimate how amazing the Philae lander landing on a comet was. I mean, comets are streaking through space at extraordinary speeds. And we actually put a piece of Earth onto a comet. So... That's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about with everybody's favorite segment, Fun Paper Friday. No cowbell today. I'm sorry. (laughs) I left my cowbell um, somewhere else. But Fun Paper Friday. So what we're going to talk about today is a paper called The Asteroid Redirect Mission and Sustainable Human Exploration. And so this is Gates et al., a whole bunch of outrageously intelligent people at NASA. And the paper talks about how do we use these fundamentals to further, I mean, essentially human exploration. It's a little more fundamental than that because the asteroid redirect mission is going to go out and it's a spacecraft that holds people and its whole purpose is to see if we can sample things that are orbiting other things. So sample asteroids to tell what they are made of and see if it is anything that we would be interested in as humans, right? Because we have a finite amount of resources here on Earth and we need to go looking for more somewhere else. This paper, though it's a little bit long, it actually reads pretty quickly. And I love some of the artist's conceptions in here of how this mission might work. Uh, Yes, these people love making figures even more than you do, John, because these figures are really awesome. Um, Yes. (laughs) You you do need to write down the acronyms as you read it because they get a little bit confusing. Um, But so this robotic mission would have two sort of ideal experiments that it could that it could undergo when it's orbiting an asteroid. So the first thing is to actually capture one of these near-Earth objects. So we've already talked about some of the near-Earth objects. We came in contact with one, or no, not contact, but very close contact with one a few weeks ago. And these things, we need to understand these near-Earth objects and maybe understand if we can push them out of the way. Right. And 
some of these might even have economic value for us because of the metals that they have. Right, exactly. So that's its twofold sort of mission is to understand if any of these asteroids would have economic value for us as humans because, like I said, we're using up our finite resources here on Earth and we need to go somewhere else for them. And then the other is to actually do something like pick up a boulder and see if we can put it into a very specific orbit. And so that would sort of be for the scenario of a near-Earth object as close to us. Can we actually alter its orbit without sending it, you know, careening down into our surface? The way that they are proposing to do this, so this is a joint robot-human mission, which was pretty fascinating. Right, yes. Uh, And... There are a couple ways. One would be to find a suitable size asteroid, so uh, something that's small, and I think in here they say something that is uh, about a thousand metric tons yes. or yeah. less, and just put it in a big bag that has a robotic cinch on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the asteroid will be spinning, and it has to have a rotation period of greater than two minutes, and the spacecraft is going to spin up to match its rotation period. Uh, get the asteroid inside the bag, and then just pull a drawstring. And now the asteroid is part of the spacecraft, and we can move it around how we want. (laughs) Um, When I was reading that, I was like, surely it's not as simple as that. But no, it is. You're just going to put a rock in a bag and then take it somewhere else, much like we do here on Earth. (laughs) Right, and since you're all going about the same speed, it would look like it was very simple from that point of view but of course from earth everything's moving very fast oh right exactly Um, (laughs) the other option is that we're going to go to something much larger and pick up a small chunk of it with something that looks like a robotic spider and then put that into orbit and that's what we'll get uh personally i kind of think the the first option of the bag with the drawstring is the most elegant uh yes i mean it seems it seems pretty easy just like we do here on Earth. And so once they know the fundamental um, the fundamentals of the object they're looking at, right, they should be able to make these orbital calculations. I mean, we've proved that we can do it, right? And so this is just taking us another step towards, you know, protecting Earth from these near-Earth objects that sometimes crop up or helping us find... Um, helping us find the essentials that we're going to need for life as humans carry on. So the cool thing about this mission is they're actually going to launch a bunch of tools and maneuvering aids up there in this bag or whatever ends up capturing the asteroid. And then the astronauts are going to go explore and these tools will be there for them and then collect some samples and bring them back to earth. See, and all those hours I spent at that machine with the claw trying to get (laughs) All the, all the little <laughs> toys. Like, this is where that pays off because that's exactly what the picture looks like, right? So It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so don't dissuade your children from doing this because you never know when one of them is going to be up on this robot-assisted uh, mission to capture little asteroids. Well, and the coolest thing I thought about this was, granted, you know, the Orion module or whatever ends up being our crew module, Uh, would be docking to this when they're exploring it. But they made a big point in the paper that the actual asteroid containment device is going to have a standard international docking adapter so that anybody can go dock and do science. (laughs) Which is awesome. Um, I think that's that's something that 
hopefully somebody was frustrated with not being able to find a cell phone plug-in and they added that (laughs) (laughs) to this spacecraft and they thought you know this is how it's it's like open source science but in an orbiting spacecraft so that is our fun paper friday don't forget to tell us what you're reading for fun paper friday and you can do that on just about any form of social media using the hashtag Fun Paper Friday. And I wanted to say thanks to the folks that have uh, written in and talked to us and told us that they're enjoying the show. So please go ahead and write those reviews on iTunes or send us some feedback. And Shannon, how can they do that? Well, they can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as always, we are on the Twitter sphere at Don't Panic Geo. You can find John at Geo underscore Lehman or myself at Shannon Doolin. All right. So until next time, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.